Australia in the World is a podcast produced with the support of the Australian Institute of International Affairs. The AAA wants Australians to know, understand and engage more in international affairs. All views expressed are solely those of the speakers themselves. Hello and welcome back to the Australia in the World podcast. As always, you're with Darren Lim from the Australian National University and Alan Gingell, National President of the Australian Institute of International Affairs. Hello, Alan. Hi, Darren. We're recording on Tuesday, the 13th of September today, and I think we're aiming for more of a leisurely snorkel this week, as opposed to plumbing the depths in our scuba gear on the question of Taiwan last episode. We do, however, need to swim in the same waters, I'm afraid, because I want to pick up from an argument you made last episode, Alan, about the need for the Australian government to make a formal statement on China. So we're going to start there and discuss the merits of such a statement and the place of China in Australian foreign policy. That'll be most of the episode, but we'll consider the implications of the death of Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth II, Australia's head of state, for Australian foreign policy at the end. Now, Alan, last episode, you said sometime in the next six months that the government should make a formal statement about its relationship with China, that this had been missing and is as important for our own policy processes as it is for the message it sends to Beijing. Can you unpack that a little bit for us, please? What do you envisage for the statement and why is it important? That turns out to be an interesting question, Darren. I've certainly said a couple of times that a high-level statement on Australia's policy towards China would be a good thing, but I think I more or less assumed that it was just a statement of the bleeding obvious, and uh, now you're expecting me to defend myself. But it is interesting because thinking about it underneath it all is a question about the foundations of foreign policy. As we've said number of times before, I think. Foreign policy, for me, is the part of statecraft concerned with the way the nation-state manages its interaction with other actors, and that's mostly countries, in the international system. It's the process through which the country acts in the world to advance its interests and protect its values so that no matter what happens, uh, no matter which way the currents of international politics drive you, the country always has options and it's not forced or coerced in certain directions. So that means I'm perfectly relaxed about the idea that ambiguity and a lack of clarity is sometimes a perfectly reasonable tactic for any country to adopt. Because it's always dealing with a constantly changing international environment, foreign policy can never be entirely prescriptive. Who could have foreshadowed COVID or the Ukraine war five years ago? As an example, we talked about it last week, though it's more from the realm of strategy. You can think about the role played by strategic ambiguity in American policy towards Taiwan. But in a case like the Australia-China relationship, where there are so many uh, strategic, economic, societal issues at play, and where China is so central to so much of what Australia wants to accomplish in the world, in my view, there's a strong case for clarity, at least on the main structural issues. We really do want the parameters and depth of our interest and objectives in the China relationship 
to be understood by Beijing and to be understood by the other states with which we have a close relationship and by the Australian policy community and public as well. There's just too much room for misreading and in my view, we need to set out our position. Penny Wong's speech about Southeast Asia to the International Institute of Strategic Studies in Singapore is a is an example of the sort of thing I've got in mind. Okay, well, it's always more fun when we disagree, Alan, so I'll disagree with you here. Our central criticism of the previous government's approach to China was in its language and tone, and we've, of course, praised the new government for its explicit focus on being disciplined in this area as a way of helping stabilise the relationship. Now, I don't doubt, as you describe it, Alan, that there is room or benefit to clarity on some of the main structural issues, and obviously there is a risk of misunderstanding or misinterpretation. But my query is whether clarifying things, being more explicit, could also come with costs principally that could destabilise the relationship. While I don't doubt that the government would be very careful in crafting its language, I still see a risk that Beijing would find something to be offended by. Perhaps the needle can be threaded, but looking around our immediate region, I don't see other leaders giving equivalent speeches that are specific about their bilateral relations with China. So while I obviously support Australia acting to protect its interests, I see downsides in potentially putting a target on our backs through a major prominent speech that will get a lot of attention. I guess here I see living in a rhetorical grey zone of sorts as giving us more options. Another point, every statement by a government and every expressed policy doctrine on some level is political or has political sensitivities embedded into it. Now, of course, though, we certainly prefer our governments not to use foreign policy for naked advantage against their political rivals at home because of the risk that poses to the national interest. But we also cannot expect a government would willingly create political problems for itself at home either, especially not through a declaratory statement. And sometimes... In statements, the politics is in what is not said rather than what is said. I think back to a notable line in the 2017 Foreign Policy White Paper where the government said it recognised debate and uncertainty in the United States about its global role, which was, for me, in my reading, a telling euphemism for concern that we all had about the Trump presidency being the beginning of the end. This leads me to my follow-up question on this point, Alan. If a statement was made, I think it would be essential for it to be bipartisan for many reasons, including that making China into a truly partisan issue would not help Australia's interests, but it would probably help Beijing's. Do you agree? We've touched on this before, and it's an important question, and I'm still actually kicking myself for not asking the minister about it when she was on our podcast Because foreign policy concerns itself fundamentally with national interests, it's unsurprising that it will normally be quite bipartisan. Everyone agrees that we want a a strong economy and a secure nation and so on. And that's certainly what we've seen over 80 years in Australia. But bipartisanship, in my view, shouldn't be an aim in itself. 
in every other dimension of public life in a democracy, elections enable us to choose between different policy outcomes, and these often derive from the weight we place on certain values and desirable social outcomes. Now, of course, if divisions over national purpose become too sharp, then the strength of the nation falters, and Lebanon may be an example of this. But I would much rather have a lively debate about foreign policy than accept that alone of all the purposes of government, it has to be placed beyond dispute. And, you know, the AIIA exists precisely to encourage such discussion. So even on China, I see plenty of room for debate. Just to take one example, should we agree to China's negotiating entry to this CPTPP trade pact? It's quite possible to argue that in different ways. Hmm. Still not quite satisfied, Alan. Look, I don't object strongly to anything you've said, but what's missing is whether you see any real costs to accompany these benefits, which I can't deny, let alone weighing them up. Let me try to be more concrete with two hypotheticals. First, as most of our listeners will know, the UN Office of the High Commissioner for Human Rights recently released a long-awaited report on Xinjiang. The report states that there is credible evidence of serious human rights violations, some of which may constitute crimes against humanity. A few weeks ago, just after the report was released, Foreign Minister Wong released a statement on the report saying just this, essentially, and repeating the consistent condemnation of every Australian government of the human rights violations against Uyghurs in particular. In response, the Chinese embassy in Canberra expressed its firm opposition and strong dissatisfaction, accusing the government of blindly agreeing with an assessment based on disinformation and making false and unfounded accusations against China. And that seemed to be the end of that. But let's say in a high-profile speech by the Prime Minister or the Foreign Minister, similar reference is made because the government knows they'll be criticised from both left and right, probably, if they don't mention the human rights situation. But the very prominence of the overall speech itself forces or triggers Beijing to react more strongly, perhaps with further trade sanctions or perhaps another freeze in ministerial contact. Then perhaps our government is forced to respond to that lashing out. And once again, the relationship spirals into acrimony. So that's scenario one. Scenario two, as many listeners will remember, during the election campaign, the now opposition leader, Peter Dutton, said in Parliament that he had seen evidence that the Chinese Communist Party had decided to back Anthony Albanese in the upcoming election, and then even invoked the name of the head of ASIO, Mike Burgess, to defend his statements when Labor complained in the parliamentary debate. This forced Burgess then to later speak up and defend his agency against politicisation, which is really quite unusual. Well, Mr Dutton is now opposition leader. And if a speech floated, say, your idea, Alan, of China joining onto the CPTPP, perhaps in exchange for the lifting of all trade restrictions that we're currently experiencing, in response, I can imagine Dutton might accuse the government of bowing to the coercive campaign and thus being weak on China and national security generally. But maybe when he does this, 
when he launches this political criticism, he is especially loose in his language, which causes the Chinese embassy to release a statement attacking him personally, which he then uses as evidence that Beijing is firmly on Labour's side. And from that point onwards, perhaps every China issue, which is most foreign policy issues, becomes partisan. So that's scenario two. Alan, do you see either of these two scenarios as plausible, or do you simply not see any of the risks that I'm worrying about? Look, in, in this and, and what you said earlier, you seem to be arguing that it's better to avoid articulating our policy position clearly to Beijing because it will cause us complications, and I just don't buy that. I assume you're not suggesting that we would not be prepared to state our views on issues like Xinjiang directly to Chinese interlocutors in face-to-face meetings. No, no, of course not. So provided our language is careful and accurate and uncoloured, we have nothing to be concerned about. And as for the chance of such a speech provoking a domestic political squabble here, well, one thing the Australian political system always ensures is that our politicians are match fit for close-in wrestling. And I honestly don't see that as any sort of uh, fresh danger. Fair enough, Alan. Well, let's assume that the decision to make a statement, a speech, is made. Before we get to the substance of what should go into it, Alan, a process question, how would such a statement be constructed? Would it be like a mini white paper where there is wide consultation within government? Or would it be a speech written inside the office of the prime minister or the foreign minister, perhaps with the input of a handful of senior officials? Like, how would you do it? Every prime minister and foreign minister will do it differently. When I was in the PMO, I certainly saw speech writing as very much part of my responsibility, partly because the international advisor in the office is always going to be more familiar with the prime minister's policy objectives and outlook and ways of talking, but also because speeches are the ultimate way of establishing policy positions, and I wasn't prepared to give give that away to anyone else. Uh, Once ministers (laughs) have uttered the words, that's it. But look, although good speeches can't be written by committee, any halfway sensible PM or foreign minister will make sure that the terrain of the speech has been surveyed in advance by officials and that all the implications have been weighed. In the case of the PM, this would fall to PMNC to coordinate with DFAT defence and so on. But whichever way you do it, you don't need, in my view, a mini white paper process to achieve it. Thanks, Alan. I know if I were writing the speech, focusing on that terrain, as you put it, would be a central you know, priority you know, to look at every speech and document to understand where we've come from and where we are right now. And this would go all the way back at least to 1972 with a joint communique which is where Australia recognised or switched its recognition to the People's Republic of China. Now, on that point, I recommend a recent piece in the Aspie Strategist blog by Stuart Doran, which discusses and links to all of the preparatory material that went into that decision back in the early 1970s. It's very interesting. And you can click through to read the documents and the cables if you're interested. I'd also want to look at recent documents from our friends. And the top of that list would be Tony Blinken's recent China speech. The EU also published a strategic outlook document back in 2019, which famously referred to China as 
both a cooperation partner and economic competitor and a systemic rival. And I'd also include an outstanding speech from the Singaporean Prime Minister, Lee Hsien Lung, back in 2019 at the Shangri-La Dialogue, which I'll actually talk about a bit more in a moment. And of course, as I foreshadowed, Alan, I would talk to my friends in the opposition, though I'd probably start with Simon Birmingham rather than Peter Dutton. But now we have the big question, what should the government say? I see at least two central tensions that the answer to this question needs to grapple with. First, even in a speech about bilateral relations with China, does the US need to be mentioned? A lot, a bit, or not at all? And second, what is the balance between focusing on potential areas of cooperation and obvious areas of disagreement? Now, Neither of us, of course, are positioned to be specific and perfectly balanced in our language, Alan. So let me ask it this way. What are your instincts telling you about the kinds of messages we should be sending to Beijing and that the government should be telling Australians? I honestly get perplexed by some of the discussion about China policy, Darren. It, it all seems reasonably easy to me. You say what you want from the relationship clearly and calmly, and you say what you don't want and you do it in language which is addressed to the Chinese government rather than to a domestic audience. This would be a strategic speech, if you like. There'd still be a lot of room for tactical manoeuvrability about the issues of the day. I would set out how the Australian government thinks about China, how we see the relationship changing, what the red lines are for us in it. I would repeat that China is important to Australia that we welcome its remarkable success, that we're absolutely committed to a long-term constructive partnership based on mutual respect, that we want to work closely with China to advance our comprehensive strategic partnership, which provides an invaluable framework for progressing our mutual and complementary interests. I would say that we will not always agree because we have different systems and different national interests, but that crucially we will manage those divergences constructively guided by the principle of equality and our deep and abiding mutual respect. I'd say there's much potential to take our relationship even further, both bilaterally and internationally. Now, it's possible that some of our listeners will recognise that every word in those past couple of paragraphs was uttered by Scott Morrison in a speech in Sydney in October 2018. I don't think we should repeat that language, but it shows that it's certainly possible for the government to articulate the parameters of a relationship that we and China could live with and benefit from. Would we want to talk about the US? Of course. We would want to make clear the abiding nature of our alliance with America and our ongoing commitments. There are no surprises for China there nor would there be any surprises in our insistence that trade and other commitments should be adhered to. And we would talk about the way we frame human rights issues internationally, consistently for every country and every situation. So there you are, halfway there, Darren. Would there be any surprises in the speech, Alan? Because if there aren't going to be any surprises, does the speech really need to be made? Isn't it just all common sense and well-known by those who are doing policy in the China field? Absolutely not. No, it's not well-known. Declaratory policy is quite often common sense. There's great value in setting it out unambiguously. 
Okay. Can I come back to your first point that it does seem reasonably easy to you? If you're correct in that assessment, why hasn't it happened? Uh Uh-huh. Well, a couple of reasons. We had the speech I mentioned by Scott Morrison four years ago. Then we had the constraints of COVID, which were real. But in addition, I strongly suspect that the different approaches and emphases within its own ranks made it a little bit too complicated by the end for the last government. And with the present government, it's really only been in power a short time. And you wouldn't, in any case, expect the PM to begin by canvassing a more general approach to foreign policy rather than just focusing on China, because that would give too much prominence to one dimension of our international relations. That's why I've been talking about six months. Mm. We need to hear the Albanese doctrine first, perhaps. (laughs) Anyway, let me have a turn. I mentioned earlier Tony Blinken's 2022 speech just from earlier this year and Lee Shin Lung's 2019 speech, which are interesting to consider together because they are so different. Secretary Blinken's speech is probably the more curious because despite literally being titled The Administration's Approach to the People's Republic of China, it has very little China in it. And probably 90% of the minimal discussion of the PRC is to be critical and cast Beijing in a clearly negative light such as describing China as the most serious long-term challenge to the international order. Now, that might be correct, but especially notable to me is that Blinken says that he doesn't believe they can change China at all. And so the US is going to focus on the strategic environment around Beijing rather than to change China itself. The administration's three-pronged strategy for doing that is first about investing at home, second about working with partners, and third, about competing with China. Only towards the very end does he briefly touch upon areas of potential cooperation like climate change and public health. Now, I'm not mentioning this to disagree with it necessarily. My point is that there is no message for China in that speech. And you said that in your comments earlier, Alan, like this would be addressed to Beijing in your vision. This speech is not addressed to Beijing. The US is going to deal with China mostly by not dealing with China. In contrast, the 2019 speech by Li Xianlong, the Singaporean Prime Minister, speaks directly both to Beijing and Washington. And I think it's excellent and recommend it to everybody. And I want to provide a bit of a lengthy quote from his message to Beijing. Quote, China has to recognize that it is in a totally new situation created by its own success. China can no longer expect to be treated the same way as in the past when it was a much smaller and weaker country. China may still be decades away from becoming a fully developed advanced country, but it cannot wait decades before taking on larger responsibilities. Having gained much from the international system, China now has a substantial stake in upholding it and making the system work for the global community. Chinese leaders have spoken up strongly in support of globalization and a rules-based international order. China must now convince other countries through its actions that it does not take a transactional and mercantilist approach, but rather an enlightened and inclusive view of its long-term interests. And then later he says, 
to grow its international influence beyond hard power, military strength, China needs to wield this strength with restraint and legitimacy, end quote. Now, the Singaporean Prime Minister had equally powerful messages for Washington. And I'm sorry, I I can't help myself. You know what this speech reminds me of? My favourite Australian foreign policy speech ever, of course delivered by former Prime Minister Paul Keating to the Chinese in Beijing in 2013, which I think I've only mentioned about 23 times before on the podcast. So back to the point about surprises, Alan, I lean towards actually being a bit more surprising. I don't think the type of speech we're discussing can only be about the bilateral relationship. The interests of our two countries overlap and clash too much, I think. Our approach to China shapes our approach to the South Pacific and to Southeast Asia. It shapes our alliance with the US and our other security partnerships. So if I were to give a speech like this, with all the risks that it entails, at least that I see, I would go big. I would try to set out a vision for a regional order in which China plays a major leadership role, but one that is acceptable to others, a vision that everyone can live with. I would channel Li Xinlung on China's need to take more responsibility and Paul Keating's focus on the need for reassurance and the idea that China won't be secure until its neighbours feel secure. While I'd be speaking to Beijing, in many ways the most important audiences would be elsewhere in the region, like in the South Pacific and Southeast Asia. Anyway, final question on this. I'm with you on that. I'm all in favour of going big now you've explained it in that way. And I also agree with you that the Lee Sien Lung speech is excellent. I mean, it'd have a, a new category of risk in some ways. Maybe you would avoid some of the domestic political angles because you're talking in such broad terms and being in many ways ambitious and in some ways sort of scholarly in thinking about order and, and leadership. And it could obviously fall on deaf ears, but I think there is a potential there for creative thinking that could resonate not just in Beijing, but maybe even more especially elsewhere in the region. But it's a question we're all trying to answer, right? (laughs) And so it would be remarkable if an Australian political leader could set out a a vision like that. Final question on this topic, Alan. Several times we've both bemoaned the media's obsession with China, focusing its questions to the government on China issues, it seems almost exclusively, and usually framed through the lens of threat and conflict. But putting the media to one side, do you think China should be the central organising principle of much, if not most, of our foreign policy? Does the development of a sound foreign policy strategy for places like the South Pacific and Southeast Asia, for example, require us to locate China centrally within our thinking? Well, not centrally. If it becomes central, it means we're taking far too limited a view of the opportunities available to us from these other relationships. Geopolitics and geoeconomics, and therefore China and the US, are inevitably going to flavour the atmosphere in which our other bilateral relationships are conducted, and they will always be on an agenda for discussion between leaders. But the central organising principle, in my view, has to be what we and the other state, whether that's as large as Indonesia or as small as Tuvalu, can do to advance our interests, including by helping to shape the neighbourhood and progressing global interests. I think I disagree here too, Alan. You can't, Darren. I mean, look, honestly, it's just blindingly obvious. 
Well, maybe my disagreement doesn't matter much in substance, but when I think of Australia's need to improve our policy, say, in the South Pacific, for example, that need has fresh urgency, as we well know. And on an issue like security assistance to Solomon Islands, it may be a zero-sum question, working with Australia or Beijing, but perhaps not both. When small countries are thinking about how to advance their own interests, to use your frame, Alan, some are assessing that if working with Australia is too onerous or the results aren't being delivered, then Beijing is the alternative. So I think we constantly need to be aware of what Beijing is offering, what the downsides of the China model are, so that we can craft our own authentic and appealing vision. Part of the new government's emphasis has been listening and being respectful and trying to, I think, remind ourselves of the deep and historically rooted connections that we've taken for granted previously. So I actually think that a China frame, and we may be splitting hairs here, but a China frame actually might encourage us to be the best version of ourselves. So I'm implicitly more comfortable with it as an idea, but we may be talking about the same thing. <laughs> okay. All right, okay. well, let's wrap up here, Alan. We're going to finish by mournfully observing that we here down under have a new head of state, King Charles III, following the passing of his mother, Queen Elizabeth II, who reigned over the United Kingdom and, of course, Australia and 13 other Commonwealth realms for over 70 years. Can I invite you first to comment on the life of Queen Elizabeth, but also take this sad opportunity to reflect on the role the British monarchy plays or doesn't in Australian foreign policy? Well, I'm one of the small minority of Australians who will be able to remember both her coronation, lying on the floor, listening to the watch of the wireless in our living room and her funeral. So for me, there really is a sense of an age passing. The PM is right that this is not the time to talk about the Republic. But as a Republican, I did want to make the obvious point that the new king is primarily the king of Australia only when he is in our country. When he eventually makes his first visits to Washington or Paris or Pretoria, it will be as the British head of state, not the Australian. So one minor reason, and I accept that it is minor, for us to become a republic is that it would enable us to deploy our own head of state, however ceremonial the position, overseas as another potentially useful instrument of statecraft like the Irish or the Germans do, and I'm afraid the Governor-General just doesn't cut it as a pseudo-head of state. I appreciate you've qualified this as a minor point, Alan, but I'm still a bit sceptical about the impact of the Governor-General's office or not. New Zealand, for example, shares the British monarch with us, but Prime Minister Ardern is one of the most charismatic statespersons in the world. Anyway, the Queen's passing has sparked some interesting conversations with my friends about how elites are created and sustained in democracies and the role they play in contributing to political order. I certainly appreciate that an institution like the monarchy, to which no ordinary person can aspire, is problematic. But let me quote uh, the writer and thinker Andrew Sullivan writing in his newsletter this week, and I'll post a link. You can make all sorts of solid arguments against constitutional monarchy. But the point of a monarch 
is precisely that it is not the fruit of an argument. It's emphatically not an Enlightenment institution. It's a primordial institution smuggled into a democratic system. It has nothing to do with merit and logic and everything to do with authority and mystery. Two deeply human needs our modern world has trouble satisfying without danger. The crown represents something from an ancient past, a logically indefensible but emotionally salient symbol of something called a nation. Something gives its members meaning and happiness. End quote. Now, there are certainly more Enlightenment-friendly ways of creating and sustaining elite classes, but once you have them, they will play a role in the stability of your polity. So be careful what you wish for. A house of Windsor could easily be replaced with a house of Trump, and that's what I've been thinking about this week. The Queen's greatest virtue was her self-restraint, and I hope that we can find other models like her in the future. Not to prolong this, Darren, I would be a monarchist if I were a Brit, but I reckon that if Australia is searching, as Andrew Sullivan says, for something primordial, something, as you quoted him, emotionally salient from the ancient past, we have different places to look and older traditions to draw on than the House of Windsor. That's very well said, Alan, and that would be a worthy conversation to have. Our final segment, reading, listening, and watching. What do you have for us this week? For anyone looking for a source of engaging commentary on British politics, and who isn't, a uh, podcast which was recommended to me by one of our listeners, The Rest is Politics, which features an unlikely pairing. On one side is the former Tory MP and aid minister, Rory Stewart, who was driven out of his party by Boris Johnson and is now the CEO of Give Directly, which is an innovative charity which allocates direct cash transfers to individuals in the world's poorest countries. And his co-presenter is Tony Blair's former Director of Communications and Strategy, Alastair Campbell, who was the model, of course, for the immortal Malcolm Tucker in the thick of it, one of my all-time favourite TV shows. So intelligent, informed discussion from different perspectives. Thanks, Alan. Not unlike us. (laughs) In that vein, two recommendations from me. First, we discussed last episode on Taiwan, Hugh White's recent or latest quarterly essay, and I understand the latest edition that's not yet out will contain several responses to that essay, uh, including by Mark Harrison at the University of Tasmania, Rory Medcalf here at the ANU, and of course, Kevin Rudd, former Prime Minister. And so I'm going to link to those responses in the show notes, not via the quarterly essay, because I don't think it's out yet, but you can find them on social media. So for those who are interested, they're worth a read. Second, As we all know, we've got a new parliament that's just gotten started over the last few months, and that has given the opportunity to newly elected representatives to give their first speeches to parliament. And these are really quite a significant moment in the political career of a member of parliament. Listeners will recall, for example, that I referenced Penny Wong's first speech delivered 20 years ago in asking her a question when we interviewed her back in episode 100. So not only do you learn a lot about the speaker, I also think you learn something about the nation as a whole at that moment in time by seeing who is being elected to office. 
I've really enjoyed over these past few weeks as Parliament has sat watching these first speeches on YouTube, and I want to recommend three in particular. In the best non-partisan transition of this podcast, I'll give one from Labor, one from Liberal Party, and one Independent. The Labor speech is from Sam Lim, who I regret to say is no relation, since there are not enough former Dolphin trainers in my branch of the Lim family. <laughs> the Liberal one is from Keith Wallahan, and the Independent is from Dai Lei. What unites these three speeches, though the three MPs are certainly not alone in this, is that all three are migrants to this country, and their personal stories of how they came to Australia, which are very different, and what being in Australia means to them are really profound and I think speak to the very best of what it means to be an Australian. One last point to add for the IR theorists listening in, Keith Wallahan's must be the inaugural occasion that a first speech explicitly mentions the security dilemma. So come for the story of our country, but stay for the foreign policy. And full disclosure, Keith is a friend from my university days in my early career in Melbourne. That's all for today's episode of Australia in the World. We thank Atika Meki for her audio editing today, and thanks also to Rory Stenning for composing our theme music. Thank you and talk to you again soon.